So in January 2020, last year, we rented the place to open our location. But then in three months, COVID happened. Long story short, we launched three months ago. So we had uh, over a year delay. Uh, But to be honest, we we really spent that time fine-tuning and building the product. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, and I am joined by Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, and Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro. Uh, this week, we are going to speak to Thomas van der Verde, who is the co-founder of the Anything Cinema, which is a micro-cinema with 14 seats, which actually kind of sounds like my dream. Uh, but first, before we get to that conversation and a whole rundown of news, uh, including the domestic opening results of the movie that you've heard me talk about more times than you probably care to, Dune. Uh, We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor. This week's episode is brought to you by Box Office Pro's Commemorative Centennial Edition. Celebrate 100 years of our magazine by advertising in our Commemorative Centennial Edition, reaching over 4,000 top executives and decision makers in theatrical distribution and exhibition this December. Our magazine is the official publication of the National Association of Theater Owners, reaching the most influential figures in the industry, both in the U.S. and around the world. Special rates are available to celebrate our 100th anniversary in publication. Contact Susan at boxoffice.com to be included in this historic edition. Uh, yeah, you, you only turn 100 once, and I'm I'm really looking forward to what the next 100 years is going to hold for box office, though I cannot even begin to guess. But uh, by the time we turn 200, we might have seen this movie that the first trailer for which just came out that has been delayed forever. Russ, we finally have a trailer and some sign of life from the video game adaptation Uncharted. What's the deal with this? Because pretty much all I know about it is that it's a movie that is supposed to have been made like five times in the last decade. Right. I think to call it actually to say that it's been delayed forever is maybe kind of the wrong language because that to me at least suggests that the movie has been finished and it's been sitting on the shelf and awaiting release, which is not the case. Uncharted is based upon the video game series of the same name, which is one of Sony's signature uh, gaming IPs for the PlayStation. The the games themselves are highly cinematic uh, and indebted to Indiana Jones and pretty much every other movie of that stripe in that it follows Nathan Drake, a treasure hunter who kind of circumnavigates the globe in search of various, a combination of uh, relics and nuggets of personal history. And so, uh, yeah, this is a movie based on a game that Sony has been looking to make for a long time. And it's finally happened. In fact, it's been a development so long that Mark Wahlberg, who co-stars as uh, the mentor character Sully, was at one point floated to play Nathan Drake, the main character, who is now played by Tom Holland. So this is Sony kind of maintaining their uh, action movie relationship with Tom Holland and looking to extend it. Clearly, this is seen as the potential opening salvo of a new franchise. So uh, by the time we get to the second centennial anniversary for box office, uh, you know, maybe the second Uncharted movie will finally be out. And for those of you who want to see little baby Spider-Man getting his Indiana Jones on, you can visit the Box Office Trailer Network on YouTube, where we have 
all the latest trailers. But we're how many minutes into recording? Russ, uh, it's time for Dune Talk. I imagine you've got to be happy this week, hopefully because you you saw the film and enjoyed it, Um, but also because the film did well in its opening weekend at the box office coming in. Uh, 41 million opening weekend from 4,100 screens approximately, right on par with chief analyst Sean Robbins' uh, predictions for the opening weekend and the highest opening for Warner Brothers since pre-pandemic. Certainly, certainly good news, of course, with the asterisk of what would the movie have made if it had not simultaneously come out in theaters and on HBO Max. It's something that we have no data points for, and it would be, you know, we can't really speculate as to it. But what we got was good. Daniel, something that that we've been talking about and the, the guests who we've had on this podcast over the last year and a half have been talking about um, is the importance of premium formats in, uh, in, in getting moviegoers back to the cinemas, particularly for a movie like Dune, which is such a big spectacle and which just looks amazing visually, as Denis Villeneuve's movies tend to do. Uh, this movie in particular, premium formats really, really came through for Dune, or rather, Dune really came through for premium formats. Yeah, I mean, the premium formats representing nearly half of all ticket sales domestically. You mentioned that we really can't speculate as to what the impact of the day and date is in assessing this film's performance from Warner Media's perspective completely understandable. I think the studio, like many others, are taking this and every other day and date release as a, uh, let's call it an omni-channel perspective, looking at how it streams and how it plays theatrically. But the impact that we do see when these movies open up day and date is that audiences tend to turn out on opening weekend. And when they do, they tend to come out to see the film in a premium format for an experience that they wouldn't be able to get at home. This actually represented the highest opening weekend for IMAX since the beginning of the pandemic. Guys, IMAX coming in with around 9 million of that domestic earnings for Dune, that's around 22.5% of all ticket sales coming in that IMAX format. The movie was shot with IMAX cameras around 73 minutes of the film are specially shot and optimized for that IMAX screen, for that large screen that we see in those auditoriums. The top five IMAX locations coming in uh, from the TCL Chinese Theater in Hollywood, AMC Lincoln Square here in New York, where I'm going to be seeing the film later on this week, AMC Matreon in San Francisco, and then a couple of Cineplex locations in Canada, the Cineplex Scotiabank in Toronto, and the Cineplex Bank Scotia Montreal, for those top five in terms of IMAX. For the top five DMAs, Rebecca, we've got Los Angeles leading the pack, followed by New York, San Francisco, Seattle, and Dallas. And the top three earning locations overall here in North America for the opening weekend for Dune, not a coincidence here, AMC Lincoln Square in New York with $170,000. In second place, we have the TCL Chinese Theater in LA with 128K. And in third place, AMC Burbank in Los Angeles with 125,000. Russ, you're familiar with the LA market. What do these uh, big multiplexes represent when you look at these top performers 
uh, in the market. You know, the those two that did particularly well are just historically known uh, in Los Angeles as great places to see a large format movie. So the Chinese has a terrific screen. It's got a great, you know, the atmosphere at the Chinese is great. Uh, the downside is that it's in the middle of Hollywood and frankly, on a weekend, parking can be sort of annoying. The Burbank and AMC is extremely popular because uh, it's also a great presentation and it is slightly easier to park. I would have been happy if I could have seen the movie at either of those locations. They're both terrific houses. So, Daniel, one of the things that we spoke about actually uh, on last week's episode is the fact that when you have a film like Dune going day and date, it's really important for it to reach those international markets a few weeks early so a film doesn't get just completely crippled by piracy, as appeared to be the case with last week's Halloween Kills. Dune, however, has already been out in international markets for several weeks now before it came to HBO Max, so they didn't have that pristine piracy print. And that international journey now continues for the film with Dune over the weekend coming out in China. Um, wh- what's the international gross progressing now for Dune? You know, it's it's doing rather well thanks to that head start that you mentioned, Rebecca. The international total is now at 182.2 million. Uh, this weekend, we saw several new openers. China opening to 21.8 million. A second place finish in the market behind the massive blockbuster there, the battle at Lake Changjin, a domestic uh, title that is really doing great business there. But that 21.8 million from China, it's actually not that bad when we look at it in context, right? China is now the second biggest overseas market for the title behind France, where it has now grossed about 27.5 million in five or so weeks in release. Another big opener this weekend was the UK, where it premiered at 8 million from 599 screens, taking first place away from No Time to Die, which uh, has had a fantastic run there. So a good head start internationally for Dune, a good number of premieres this weekend. The worldwide total for the title, including domestic, is now at $223.2 million. Uh, and now moving on uh, to the box office chart domestically, uh, Rebecca, we had another big drop from a day and day title. What happened with Halloween Kills in its second weekend? We did. I think what happened with Halloween Kills and its second weekend uh, is is Peacock happened. As you'll remember, it had uh, a quite good first weekend last weekend, actually the highest uh, opening for a day and date film of the pandemic era. As we mentioned before in this episode a few minutes ago, didn't really do so well internationally. In fact, didn't get to the number one spot in any international markets in which it opened. And now domestically, second weekend, we do have a 71% weekend drop, bringing it to 41.4 million from around 3,700 screens for a domestic total of 73 million and counting. The second weekend drop for the immediate prequel to this film, 2018's Halloween, uh, was only 58.7%. An earlier iteration of the film, also within the franchise, a 63.9% drop. I mean, again, we don't have statistics for this, but you have to imagine it's a case of the diehard showing up for the first weekend and then people who are a little bit maybe, uh, you know, plus or minus on it, opting instead to see it on Peacock. So we're we're not seeing long legs on on this one at all. Daniel, was there any kind of pickup uh, from international markets where it had that disappointing debut last week? 
It's still a struggle overseas with Halloween Kills now making a total of 17.5 million from 53 overseas territories. The previous entry in this iteration of the Halloween franchise, helmed by director David Gordon Green, made $96 million in its run outside of North America. That's about 38% of its uh, worldwide theatrical total came from the international marketplace. That's not the case with this one right now. Really, uh, two weeks in, we've got about 19% of its worldwide grosses coming in internationally. Right now, the film is at $90.5 million worldwide. As you noted earlier in this podcast, Rebecca, we are seeing great numbers from fan-driven titles that go day and date on opening weekend, particularly in premium formats. But the real impact here is when international doesn't get uh, an advanced exclusive run, and especially in subsequent weeks domestically, we're seeing these big drops. I think Halloween Kills being uh, another data point on the struggles of uh, day and date. Uh, going on to third place, we had no time to die. Uh, where did that finish up here in North America, Rebecca? It had a uh, it had a pretty modest drop of forty nine percent to uh, twelve million on around thirty eight hundred screens bringing it to a domestic total of 120.3. I had the chance to go see it with my family over the weekend. It was the first time my father had been back to the theaters in, uh, in I think, two years, a solid two years. So uh, it was a good experience. Um, Internationally, it's crossed the 100 million mark at the UK, bringing its cum in that market to 105 million. And it has a little round of applause for No Time to Die here, crossed the 500 million mark worldwide. That is only the second film to do that since the beginning of the pandemic. The first being, of course, uh, Universal's F9. Uh, So we're looking at a pretty solid hold, pretty solid continued international performance for No Time to Die, uh, which now stands at 525 million worldwide. And then in, in fifth place, we have Ron's Gone Wrong, a film which I a little kind of went to bat for last weekend, and I am prepared to eat crow because it did not do well, uh, making only $7.3 million domestically from around 3,500 screens. Um, you know, the cinema score is A. It is getting good reviews. Uh, it just looks as if the marketing wasn't there. Daniel, what was the international? Did it have any better traction there? No, uh, this is another 20th Century Studios title that isn't really getting much support from the overseas box office either. I I think starting to see a trend of these movies released, quote unquote, by Disney, but not produced, quote unquote, by Disney. The movie now reaching a 10 million overseas total, bringing the global haul for this title at 17 Point three million. So some challenges there, guys. Uh, We see big blockbusters doing well. Other titles that maybe should have done a bit better on their performing, but that's not the case with the big headline, I think, this weekend coming from the specialty market. Russ, what happened with Wes Anderson's highly anticipated The French Dispatch? So The French Dispatch opened in ninth place with a 1.3 million opening weekend on 52 screens in 14 markets. The interesting data point is that it had a nearly 26,000 per screen average, which is actually the best per screen average of the pandemic, beating Venom 2, which hit a $21.3,000 per screen average, and Black Widow, which had previously hit 19.4. 
in downtown Manhattan, the Angelica was the highest grossing theater in North America for the film this weekend. It neared the 100000 mark for the three-day earning. Uh, it's higher there than Dune in all but a half a dozen cities. So this weekend, we're going to see the French Dispatch expand to more than 600 theaters in over 60 DMAs, uh, and then it will have a further expansion on the November 5th weekend. So uh, curious to see how this performance goes over the next two expansion weekends. And an interesting element, I think, of the release of this title is how the Searchlight team eventized the release. We had a number of pop-up events happening here in New York City with a pop-up cafe from the film, a setting from the film, being opened up in the East Village, folks going in, having some coffee, interacting with this setting from the film in the middle of the East Village in New York City. Uh, we had Warby Parker in a, in a partnership with Searchlight uh, giving out tote bags, promoting the film with every purchase. Those tote bags were sold out very quickly over the weekend. There was a magazine store here in New York City that sold around 1,000 limited edition print magazines promoting the film. Uh, it took over that window display as well. The department store, Bergdorf Goodman's, also taking over that window display with some costumes from the film and a special themed cocktail of the French Dispatch available inside the department store's bar. We're seeing similar immersive experiences popping up through mid-November in London. Guys, I love the strategy here and focus and attention that Searchlight put in to promote and eventize this title on a platform basis. We haven't seen too many platform releases. In your career, Russ, you've been covering this industry for a while across major cities. Have you ever seen something like this immersive experiences sort of pop up around the city to promote something in limited release? Not that I can think of. And of course, this is all just off the cuff and anecdotal. But yeah, I can't come up with something that is along these lines and not for theatrical. Uh, you know, there were Twin Peaks pop-ups in Los Angeles and I think a couple of other cities. But those might not even have been exactly promotion for that third series that aired on Showtime. I'm talking about a theatrical and especially a platform release. No, I can't think of anything exactly along these lines. I think it's also interesting to note that we're talking about here, we've talked about 20th Century Studios. Now we're talking about Searchlight, both former Fox properties now owned by Disney and a vast difference in approach between these two divisions in how they are promoting or in some cases not promoting their titles. So it's like you, I think it's great to see that Searchlight is putting this effort into this Wes Anderson movie. I mean, obviously, Searchlight has a relationship with Wes Anderson that goes back very many years. So it is very much in this company's interest to continue to maintain that relationship with the filmmaker. But it's you know great to see it moving forward like this. We certainly see some of this creative uh, marketing near the end of the year when it comes to uh, award season and guilds and right. critics getting various things because these studios want their films to get awards noms. Uh, we're not seeing quite so much of uh, an investment, and investment I mean financial and creative, in uh, actually getting people to see the films in the first place. So uh, seeing Searchlight really go in on this one, I think, is uh, warms a little spark of fire in my heart. Yeah, I really like it when studios take a lot of that creativity that they apply to the award season in spending an inordinate amount of money in getting film writers 
weird gifts that we never asked for that we actually might never use, but actually taking that energy and investment and turning it over to moviegoers and people that actually pay for a ticket to see the movie at a movie theater and activating that side of the audience. We've been talking about the challenge in getting specialty films out there, getting them seen. The challenge in a platform release at a, at a period of time where we have a shorter theatrical window. Obviously, French Dispatch, a, a filmmaker who is very well beloved by the independent film community, whether that's film goers or more art house specialty theaters. Uh, this weekend, we have a film from a similar director coming out, that being Edgar Wright of Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz fame, Scott Pilgrim as well. He has his new film, Last Night in Soho, coming out from Focus, uh, kind of psychological thriller starring kind of it girl actresses, Thomas and McKenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy. Uh, another popular among film nerds directors, Scott Cooper, has Antlers coming out from Searchlight. And then Funimation has My Hero Academia coming out. That, that's an anime property. Uh, Funimation earlier this year, of course, had, had really great success with the domestic rollout of Demon Slayer. So this is one that I'm uh, I'm excited to see how these numbers stack up. But uh, it's an interesting slate of movies that we have coming out this weekend. And I'm maybe going to be spending my weekend at the movie theater. We'll see. And you can read our weekend forecast over at boxofficepro.com this Thursday afternoon to check out our latest box office predictions on these titles. And as Dune enters its second weekend, I think a lot of questions there on how that performs. Uh, guys, thanks for joining this panel. And uh, Rebecca, I know you've got an interview set up with a very interesting uh, concept around the micro cinema idea. Yeah, it's. Um, I actually first found out about this cinema at the ICTA panel at CinemaCon. Um, immediately caught my interest. The ICTA actually gave this cinema a special award. It is the Anything Cinema, which, as Russ mentioned at the top, of this episode has a whopping 14 seats across three auditoriums, uh, seating seven, five, and two people, respectively. Uh, Daniel, we've spoken a lot about micro cinemas on this podcast and on Box Office Pro and in the magazine. So yeah, I just had to had to reach out to these guys to find out how they created this theater, how it's going, and what they think the potential for the concept is moving forward. Thomas, thank you so much for, for speaking with me today. I'm uh, excited to hear about this extremely micro, micro cinema, three auditoriums of seven, five, and two seats each. Obviously, with the pandemic, with private cinema rentals becoming much more of a thing, micro cinemas have become, uh, you know, such a hot topic of conversation. Um, I, I can imagine, however, that building a theater doesn't just come together in 18 months what was the process of of uh, creating anything? When when and where did the idea come from for you? Well, well first of all, thanks for having me because uh, I, I feel really honored that uh, you're interested in our uh, concept and uh, I'd love to tell you about it. it. It actually started in 2011. That's when the first thought came to mind of a private cinema experience. Um, actually, my girlfriend, we, we just had a, our first daughter the summer of 2011, and we weren't able, due to the pregnancy, we weren't able to see Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows Part 2. That's <laughs> the, the last, last part, one. You can't uh, miss out on The last on one. one. Yeah, yeah, so she really got me into the Harry Potter franchise, but we weren't able to see the last one. So we ended up uh, not being able to see that one in theater. And uh, But I had some good connections back then because I was working for a cinema company. 
And uh, in the end, I saw it on a Monday morning and I had some kind of private viewing in a really big uh, auditorium. And that's when I thought, this is a great experience, you know, having the cinema all for yourself. And I, my background is in technology, and I, uh, I was actually uh, starting uh, building a, a streaming service in 2011. And first moment I thought, well, you know, technology is advancing, we're getting into digital cinema, digital projection. There should be an option to, to combine all these ingredients and, and build a private cinema. So that's already 10 years ago. And then the years after, I was working on the streaming service, and it started to grow. And uh, that first idea started to mature more. And then I think five years ago, the partner in my company and I uh, really started to develop the idea further and um, decided to invest in it. I think the anything as we have it today, uh, our first concept, we really increased investing uh, two years ago and building it and you know combining a team. Yeah, the idea 10 years ago, but really building this, what we see today, uh, two, two, three years ago. So when did you initially open for business and then with COVID kind of shut down, reopen, shut down, reopen? What, what's been your timeline as far as open openings and closures is concerned? Yeah, so we, uh, our original plan was to, I believe, to launch in the summer of 2020. I think Oy. that was our ambition. Um, <laughs> and we found a location in, in January 2020. Uh, so the whole idea of the anything is that we wanted to pop up at places where uh, you would want to have access to, to cinema and work with partners. So the whole idea is not to build our own locations, but to really work with already existing locations. But we decided early in the in the project that the first location we would do ourselves, just to learn from technical issues and user journeys, etc. So in January 2020, last year, we rented the place to open our location, but then in three months, COVID happened. And long story short, we launched three months ago, uh, a little over three months ago, June 5th. So we had uh, over a year delay, uh, but to be honest, we, we really spent that time fine-tuning and, and building the product. So in hindsight, I think we, we needed that time to really get everything together. But we, we are now over three months in operation. I, I want to ask you, I'm curious about the operational kind of side of things, because when you book uh, one of the auditoriums, you get to pick which film you want to see. So you're not going to have the custom, okay, in this in this auditorium, we're playing a film all day that's this number of minutes long, so we're going to be able to have this many screenings. Can you just kind of give me a rundown on how it works from a customer and from an operations perspective? From a technology standpoint, in terms of video and security and audio, we are just like any other digital cinema. We use DCPs, uh, we use KDMs. Um, so we really, um, you know, from a back office perspective, um, we are a cinema. But with the only big difference that we don't have a programming department to decide what movie we play at what time, but we have customers that decide at what movie uh, at what time. And we are currently offering over a little over 500 movies, including first-run movies from uh, Disney, Warner, and local independents. So we have a, a great offering. And the customer goes to the app, decides which movie, which auditorium, and what time. Well, first we look at the length of the movie. So if you choose a two-hour movie, then, then we're going to look at the schedule of the auditorium you want to see the movie at. And then we'll give you all the options that are left. Um, so our, our software calculates, okay, this is a two-hour movie. We need 15 minutes before the show and after the show. And um, uh, we give you all the options that are available. And then you pick that option. And uh, that's how it works. So which is kind of um, maybe scary from a... Um, efficiency perspective because you you know you don't get to 
efficiently <laughs> program all the shows uh, back to back. Uh, but what we see now is in, in our most uh, popular uh, room, we have uh, on average in the past six weeks, we have three showings a day. Oh, so it's pretty normal. Yeah. And on a good day, uh, we do five shows on a Saturday without us having to interfere. So it's, it's just the customer deciding and, and, and it ends up pretty well. Which, uh, which room is the most popular room? Well, that's funny because we thought that when we had to decide on the capacity, we thinking of eight seats, six seats, uh, that kind of size. But we ended up on this location trying out three different capacities uh, mm-hmm. just for learning purposes. So that's why we built seven and five. And then we thought, well, for PR purposes, it's going to be really great to do a two-seater. You, you got to have a couple uh, theater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It probably uh, won't be the most successful one, but um, you know, it, it, it's, it's great to be able to say that we have the smallest movie theater in the world. But now, after about 500 shows, uh, I can tell you that the most popular one is the, the two-seater. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> nice. And maybe we shouldn't uh, be that surprised because of, of course you know the largest addressable audience is people who are go- at least in the Netherlands uh, I don't know for the US but it's uh, people you know couples going to the movie theater you know? mm-hmm. and it's kind of harder for a group to organize a cinema visit because you have five six people agreeing on what time you want to go agreeing on the movie mm-hmm. etc uh, so it's way more convenient for parties of two to, to book a movie and uh, so that's where we see the, the biggest demand how do you, as you're, it kind of feels like, I don't want to say experiment because it's it sounds way beyond that phase, but you're working out how the process is going to work as you continue to expand. What's like, what's the pricing on this? Is it a premium pricing? How do you kind of find the level? Yeah, so th- th- we are going back and forth on pricing strategies. So when we first developed the idea, we thought this should be something able to to price quite high because it's, it's a really unique and exclusive experience. But then we decided along the way that in order for this to, to really work, you need scale. You know, you need way more than, than three uh, screening rooms. And in order to get scale, you need, you know, you need volume. So we switch from being exclusive and, let's say, expensive to be very accessible so we can do more volume. Currently, today, and this is something we're ex- experimenting with, and I think it's really going to depend on the location. I mean, for New York, it's going to be totally different than for where we are in the Netherlands. But we are asking for the two-seater, uh, the most popular one, 29 euros. Oh, that's not bad. So I think that's about $35. Oh, that's not bad at all. And, and yeah, the, most people really think that's really reasonable. The, the biggest room, uh, the one I'm in right now, the, the seven-seater, is uh, 69 euros. For seven people, that's really good, actually. It's a good deal. Yeah. But I think that those price, we, we would be able to increase those prices a, a little bit in, in, in big cities. So we're in a small town right now with 30,000 citizens. And I think in, in bigger cities, um, those prices could, could go a little up. How do you handle concessions? I mean, you're going to have a maximum of 14 customers in the, the cinema at any one time. What's, what's the concession situation look like? Yeah, so in this location, uh, we are part of a restaurant and a hotel. It's a really small hotel with eight rooms, and there's a restaurant with, I think, about 40 seats. And we make it possible from to order uh, uh, within the uh, the app we built. So there's a there's a small button that you can click, and then you go to the menu. Just like you know, these days you have a lot of QR menus in restaurants, and um, so we offer that, and it's connected to the um, the food and beverage offering of this of the restaurant. And um, no, as soon as you order, then it will be delivered to the screening room. There's a wide variety of options, so it's not just popcorn and cola, but it's also warm uh, served foods from the kitchen here. Mm-hmm. And you're not having to 
hire cooks and runners and all that. That's no. the hotel. Yeah, and that's and that's really the philosophy about the project. So we, um, that, and that's why we named it the Anything. Um, you can watch anything, and the interior of the room can be anything. So we really want every, every screening room we add to the network to be different. And the locations we work with uh, will have their own personality. So in this location, you can order a certain type of food, but in our next location that we're going to add, that might be different. So you get really get a lot of options in locations, in movies. Could you expand a bit on, on those expansion plans? Because it's it's really interesting kind of integrating it into hotels. I mean, I could see this concept working super well in an airport when you have a long layover. You just want to watch a movie. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts along those lines? Yeah, so we um, we have a couple of phases in the project. The first phase is the pilot phase, and it's, that's, that's where we're at right now. So we're um, validating all the... The, the thoughts we we had prior to launching and then uh, the next phase is adding locations and what we've seen when we when we launched the idea we had a lot of local pr well even international but uh in the first phase we'd have a lot of uh, press in the netherlands and automatically a lot of hotels restaurants airports uh, all the all the ones you already mentioned reached out to us because they were interested in the idea and um, I, I think those are exactly the locations where you could add a, a screening room. So places where there's already traffic, where there's already hospitality, and when there's a, you know time and desire to watch uh, premium content. Uh, but I also believe this could really fit in traditional multiplexes with existing theatrical uh, exhibitors. So you know, in my opinion, the multiplex of the future will offer Dolby, IMAX, 40X, uh, and private cinema. Yeah, I think we could play a role in all those areas. What have been the the challenges, or I guess this is such a new concept, maybe things that you didn't expect to pop up that popped up? I think the most challenging for our project has been so far to secure rights. Besides, you know, everything else we had to do, uh, software development, uh, you know, physical realization of uh, in the building, etc. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of work I and mean, a lot of hard work. That that's okay, but I think the real challenge was to secure rights, and then it took us a while to convince uh, everybody because this is something new and something weird. Yeah, they're like the studios have to be like, what am I, what am I getting from this when you when you sell? Yeah, for, a, fourteen a, an affordable <laughs> an affordable two person cinema. Yeah, and um, you know, of course, they're usually negotiating with you know big exhibitors with with thousands of seats. And yeah, well, we have 14 seats right now. So, and that's what we told them. I mean, we have 14 seats right now, but we are really ambitious. And, um, you know, this is going to be a long-term investment. And I think because we had the experience in streaming and we built a very popular Dutch streaming service and we had good relationships with all the studios. Yeah, well, you know, we, we had a good relationship, so they trusted us. But that took a while. What are the trends in terms of what films do well at, at anything? Is it mostly first-run stuff that people want to see or is there a good balance? Yeah, so. We are now 500 shows. We've done a little over 500 shows. What I can see now is that what I find interesting, which was one of the promises to the to the right holders, that when people get have choice, you know, they the, there was an experience from the streaming service as well. Of course, everybody's interested in first run movies, uh, no doubt about it. But give the customers the option to watch older movies, um, we thought, well, you know, uh, there's a market there too. And what we see right now is that 50%, so half of all the shows we do, are movies that are in in their fifth week or later. Where if you currently look at the Dutch market, I believe 80% of um, the movies that are shown are 
in their first, second, third, or fourth week. So we're already seeing a, a kind of long tail development there. So I think what's interesting for both consumers and ride holders is, is that you get to show your movies longer uh, in this concept because we keep them available uh, as long as we can get the rights. So we, you know, we want to offer that movie. So that's, that's quite an interesting development, but yeah, the combination of first run and library. That's interesting. Like if you're a super, super big fan of something, you know, you've been putting it on your calendar and counting down the days, you're going to see it opening weekend. You probably want to go IMAX or some big special, but this is for, you want to have a date night while you're watching a movie and you maybe want to catch up with something that you have been meeting to see and you can do that. Yeah, yeah exactly. So we have to see how the market is going to develop the theatrical market is going to develop after the pandemic. But, you know, before the pandemic, I think on average in the Dutch market, we had about somewhere between 400 to 500 movies released in a year. And I think on average they would run for seven weeks in a cinema. And I had experienced myself. So that was one of the reasons that I got excited about the project is that I wanted to see movies, but I was too late to see them in cinema. I'm not really a first week kind of guy. Uh, and now you're able to, you know, to decide to watch it two months after release. So, um, yeah, that's really uh, giving some options. But what, what we also see is that a lot of people, and that's that's really, you have to experience it yourself because I think the, the visuals we have on our website and the, the interview that uh, Jan de Runge did from uh, ICTA really give a good view of what the cinema looks like. But uh, you really have to watch a movie here to see that it really gives you a cinema experience. So it, it, it's really more than... It's not. A, it doesn't feel like a home theater. No, not at all. So uh, we do get a lot of uh, customers that are so excited that they didn't go to the cinema anymore because they they may be a little older and they didn't like that experience. And now that you know, now they're excited and they're they're telling us, well, this this feels like cinema and this is this is a great way for me to watch movies. But we also get visitors who really love IMAX, who really love Dolby Cinema, and would prefer to see a big title, Dolby Cinema, for example, but we'll see other movies that they'd rather see here. So we're addressing both audiences, the, the audience that didn't go to the cinema anymore, uh, but also the audience that goes to the cinema, but wants mix to see up. maybe older movies. Yeah, mix it up. Yeah. yeah. One, one of the things that really caught my eye is uh, that you can use the app to change the temperature of the auditorium. As, as someone who tends to get cold <laughs> when I go to the movies, yeah. that one. Yeah, that's funny because we have um, one of my uh, team members, uh, Stefan, he, he used to run a, one of the biggest theaters in the Netherlands uh, for 11 years. And uh, he always tells me that one of the biggest complaints of usually women, he said, is that movie theaters <laughs> are too cold. I have to bring a scarf or something. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, we, we found a solution. Uh, so every screening room has its own uh, climate control and uh, you can adjust it in the app. You just have the men and the women fighting over where the thermostat's going to be, but that's not your problem. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Thomas, thank you so much. Uh, I'm super excited to learn more about anything, and I just so I just can't wait to see where it goes from here. And that'll wrap up this episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thanks again to Thomas Vanderveerd for joining us. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Record Edit Podcast and the Box Office Company. Thank you all for listening. Please join us again next week. Mm-hmm.